0: Good morning. So I missed you. We missed you. It's amazing. We were gone one Sunday and it seems so long. And that happens every time. And I realized that what I want to do when I go on vacation is take the whole church with us. So we got to plan bigger. You know, we got to coordinate our schedules and get a really big place. Um, We had a wonderful blessing. I want to bring greetings to you from our brothers and sisters in Christ in Minden, Nevada. Um, I don't know if you know where Minden is, it's south of Carson City, just over the Kingsbury Grade from South Lake Tahoe. Um, we made the drive because it was a church, a Nine Marks church that we had heard about, um, uh, an amazing gathering and work that God is doing, literally out in the middle of what seems like nowhere, um, although there is a very small airport near the church, which is very encouraging to me, and I thought, this is great. You got the church building, you got an airport right next to it, the uh, The people were very welcoming. The preaching was from the word of God. And it was just so encouraging to see God working in a place that, I mean, it's out in the desert, right? There are a lot of uh, ranchers around it. But people would drive for two hours to come to this particular church because there aren't many churches like it. And so in talking with them, they said, bring greetings to Camden Avenue. And so from our brothers and sisters and those in Minden, Nevada, I say hello to you. Um, very eager to preach this passage, not that that should shock you. 1 John is a passage that the, the entire book is just filled with gems. This is another one, and by God's grace, as we step into verses 1 through 6, um, we will see ourselves being called to examine, uh, not ourselves, but others, and the teachings from others. So let me do this. Let me read verses 1 through 6 in 1 John 4. You have uh, the passage on the blue handout, or you can read along with me in your Bibles. Let's pause for a minute and have that passage sink in. Father, cause us this morning to be still and know that you are God. To hear your word and glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. Hmm. I'm so thankful that we have an opportunity to still freely gather and to come together as a church and hear the word read and hear the word preached and sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs and have prayers lifted up. This is such a blessing. I pray that in your coming here this morning, you realize the great grace that's being poured out and our ability to do just this. And to that end, I pray that you are here, that you're of sober mind, that your ears are fully engaged and you want to eat and feast from the word that is going to be proclaimed. When I was teaching every year, I would have a handful of students that when midterms and finals would come around, they would complain. That's not strange. It's test time, right? But they would complain. A handful would usually complain each year. And they would always say to me, you know, Mr. Booth, you are so lucky. I would much rather give the exam than take the exam. I would assure them, to no avail, that it was significantly easier taking a test than it was writing a good exam, proctoring that exam, and then grading two to 300 essays after the exam. No matter how often I told them this, they did not believe. If you are like one of those students of mine, then you're going to love this passage this morning. Because John takes us out of the seat of, being, of the, uh, taking the exam and makes us examiners. He, he calls us to actually proctor an exam. In chapter 3, we found ourselves as test takers. We found the apostle calling us to examine our walk in Christ. And he said, is your character, is your habitual daily life practicing sin or practicing righteousness? He said, examine yourselves further. He said, do you have a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because if you do, if there's a real, sacrificial, other-centered love you have... For those God has saved, then the spirit of God, the love of God abides in you. And he said, examine yourself, test yourself. Just as Paul said, see whether or not you're really in this faith. Last week, Pastor Todd took these teachings and he brought confidence to those of us who are nervous test takers. Those of us who get filled with anxiety when we have to take the test. And he revealed to us in verses 19 and 20 of 1 John 3 that our hearts are to be at rest in his presence whenever our own hearts condemn us, knowing that God's grace, God's love, and God's power are much greater than our self-condemning hearts. And then this week, the apostle comes and he says, Listen... You've taken the test, you've examined yourself in light of scripture, in light of your love for one another, in light of your own righteousness and sin. And he says, and now I want you to step on the other side of the table and I want you to examine. I want you to examine those teachings that are coming from other people. And I want you to test them. And I want you to know what is true and I want you to know what is false so that you won't be misled. He calls us to do three things this morning. One, he says, I want you to give a test. Two, I want you to use the right answer key. And three, I want you to grade the exam. Give a test, use the right answer key, and grade the exam. Giving the test. Point number one, look at verse one. John says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He starts with a term of endearment. He says, beloved. And then in verse 4, he says, my children, my little children. He is so concerned. You know, the apostle speaks as a father to his children who loves them and wants to protect them and guard them. He says, don't be misled. He says, don't be gullible. Don't believe everything you hear. There are lots of people saying lots of things that do not align themselves with the word of God. There are lots of pastors and preachers and teachers inside the church and outside the church who are saying things that God did not say. And they're attaching it to his name and they're claiming to be Christian. He says, don't be gullible. Don't believe everything you hear. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There was a man that was actually a contemporary of the Apostle John in Asia at the exact same time, most scholars think that John was writing this letter. His name was Serenthus. And Serenthus was a really interesting heretic. He was both a Judaizer and a Gnostic. Hard one to put together. But he believed, as the Judaizers did, that, that there's no way that God came in the form of a man and was immaculately conceived by virgin birth. So he argued that Joseph and Mary were Jesus' biological parents. There was no supernatural intervention to bring the God-man to life in the womb of Mary. He was also a Gnostic in that he believed that at the baptism of our Lord, that the Spirit of Christ, as he called it, came down descended upon Jesus, and was there during his life to help Christ reveal God the Father to us and perform many miracles. But before the arrest, before the persecution, and before Jesus' death on the cross, that spirit left him. And so Jesus died just as a man. This was a prevalent teaching that was making its way through the churches in Asia that we most certainly believe John was writing against. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. Jesus Christ, in his own ministry, prophesied to this. In Matthew 24, verses 11 through 13, he said, many, Jesus said, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Many have gone out. Many will continue to go out. And they will teach things that are not of God. They're not of Christ. They're not of the word. Many will have the love grow cold and say that which is untrue. But the apostle desires us, his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, throughout the centuries, not to be misled. And so that's why he says test. The word in the Greek, it's dokimazo. It almost sounds Italian. Dokimazo, right? But it's not. It's Greek, and it means to examine or to approve. It means to rightly discern what is true and what is false. It's to hear something and then examine it and test it. And it comes with the word itself. It comes with an expectation of approval or passing. And, and that's, that's significant for us to hear. He's saying when you go to test something, don't go as a hypercritic. Don't go assuming that it's wrong. Go and listen with the hope of 1 Corinthians 13 hope that it is right and that it is true. I mean, I, I, I can tell you honestly, when I gave my exams, I wanted all my students to get A's. I didn't give them and go, come on, fail, fail, I want you to fail. I wanted them to pass. I wanted them to be approved by the exam. And this word denotes that as well, that we're to be eager to hear truth, not to find heresy or to find error or to impute it. At the same time, we must examine what we hear. We are to test everything in light of Scripture, without exception. Everything we hear, everything we read, everything we see, we're to take and we're to examine it in light of God's holy word. Because John says, everything comes from one of two spirits. It either comes from the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist. It is either from the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. It's one or the other. The spirit of God or the spirit of the world. And therefore, everything we hear, everything we see, comes from one of these two sources. And there's no third There's no middle source. There's no middle spirit. It's of God or not of God. I'll give you an example. A spirit of God, a teaching would be love one another as Christ loves us. We know that. The Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us to love one another as Christ loved us and loves us. That is a sacrificial love. That's an other-centered love. That's a love where you are more concerned with the well-being of a brother or sister in Christ than you are your own comfort. That's from the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of the Antichrist says something quite different. In fact, the Spirit of the Antichrist is the exact opposite. It says, love yourself first and foremost over others. And on top of others, if necessary. If you type in Google, greatest love of all, do you know what pops up? Some of you know. I did not know this. You know, Google is a wonderful way to get a, a, a touch to what the movement is in the culture. So I type that in, curious. Now, as a believer, I hope what? I hope Jesus Christ is going to come up. I hope the cross. I hope the gospel. The word something that will convey the greatest love of all, which is what? The Father's display of his love for mankind through the sacrifice of Christ. Whitney Houston and her song, which I did not know, but now I do, greatest love of all. So I read the lyrics. I had to. I found... Listen, this is from the song. This is from, I believe, the chorus. Some of you might know better than I. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself. It is the greatest love of all. Now, that's problematic. Because that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. She said the greatest love of all is to love yourself. Now... One teaching is from heaven and one teaching is from hell, right? One is from the spirit of God and one is from the spirit of the antichrist. Now, I'm not saying that Whitney Houston is an antichrist, but I can tell you what she says is antichrist. And so what do we do with that? We hear it and do what? We hear both. In fact, I would say in our culture, in our time, we hear both regularly within the context of the church and outside the church. In the church, you hear, love one another as Christ loves you. Outside, you say, love yourself. That's the greatest love of all. And so you have these competing teachings. How are we to examine them? In fact, we can go further and say we have a constant barrage from various sources, channels of information and teaching constantly coming at us, telling us this or that, this truth or that truth. What are we to do with all this information? I mean, we can get really isolated and say, I'm not going to hear, I'm not going to see... Or we can examine what we hear. In Acts chapter 17, Luke tells us of the Bereans. You've heard of the Bereans, yes? Berea was a church in modern day northern Greece that tested the teachings of the Apostle Paul. I'll read to you from Acts 17, verses 11 and 12. The Bereans were of noble... This is Luke writing... He said, the Bereans were of more noble character than Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, but they didn't say, well, you know, Paul's an apostle. He claims to be an apostle. They said, we're going to take even what this supposed apostle is saying and we're going to every day study it in light of God's word. And that's what they did. And it wasn't the New Testament they were studying. It was the Old Testament. And so they took the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and they weren't hypercritical. I love that. They didn't just dismiss this as a new, strange, unconventional teaching. They they said, you know what? We We have the Word of God. We don't need to be afraid. We'll take this teaching, and we'll examine it in light of this. And it says they did it with great eagerness. They wanted to know if it was true. And they did. They tested it. They examined it. And what did they find? It was true. It was the very word of God as well. And so they submitted to it. In Revelation chapter 2, too, Jesus said this of the church at Ephesus. He said, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. In other words, we see this movement in sacred scripture to take what we hear and examine it and test it to be a good test giver. To take and say, I'll take that. I'm not afraid of what you said. I'm going to take it and I'm going to open up my Bible and I'm going to examine what you said, what you as a teacher said, what you as a professing Christian said. This is the duty of every believer. This is the duty of every Church. To take the teachings of the pastor, of the elders, of members of the body, of people outside the church, of pastors in other churches, to take everything we hear and submit it to the word of God. It's a command. It's not optional for us. We cannot listen to a song by Whitney Houston and be okay with that teaching. You cannot say the greatest love of all is love for yourself and love for a brother. You cannot say that. So we must test them. And we must hold on to what is true. The spirit of God, the spirit of truth, never contradicts the word of God. Ever. Now, this requires, on our part, it requires knowledge. It requires judgment. It requires experience. It requires guidance. All of these things, God desires you to have. And so, if you say, you know what, I don't feel competent to give a test I didn't feel competent taking the test in chapters 1 through 3 and now I feel even more incompetent giving the test God says then ask me ask me for the wisdom ask me for the knowledge ask me for the discernment that you might see and hear truth and discern it rightly together with other believers in Christ together with a local body of believers who are also striving to that end what a glorious work for us what a glorious thing to take a teaching and bring it into the church and say, this is what I heard. What think you? This is what I've heard. What saith the word of God? And we open our Bibles together and we be like the Bereans or we're like those in Ephesus. What a glorious thing. I can tell you in 11 years of pastoring, we have dialogued more as a church about non-theological issues, a lot of stuff. And some of the stuff's important, some not so important. How great To have, you know, these major pieces come in. And for us to have the Council of Camden. The Council of Camden, 2013. What did you render according to the Word of God? There's ample lies out there to deal with, are there not? We are capable as believers in Christ. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. You are capable of giving a good exam to what you hear. We as a local church are capable of taking what we hear and examining it in the word of God and rendering true or false. We are capable not becoming hypercritical, not taking hard positions on non-gospel-centered issues, certainly not smaller doctrinal issues or matters of opinion or preference or style. That's what we argue about most. It's so grievous to me, and at times I know grievous to God, we argue about all the wrong things, and that which we argue about, we never talk about. So we should talk about them. We must be wise and examine carefully what those making claims to truth are saying. We must be wise when we listen to those who have a greater audience than most. Those who have large pulpits, those who have radio broadcasts, those who produce books and articles and magazines and blogs. We must be wise and not give them the benefit of the doubt merely because they have a more prominent name. And yet we do this. Someone will say to you, you know, Pastor so-and-so said this. That's great. Does it align with the Word of God? Well, you know, Pastor so-and-so down the street, he disagrees with you. Oh, that's great. Why? I want to see it in the Word of God. I disagree with myself if it doesn't agree with the Word of God. And so ought you. We must be wise, especially in this age, when the influence of more prominent speakers and teachers, those who profess Christ and claim the title Christian, who have books whose ideas are filled in novels and magazines and newspapers and make their way into our everyday conversation? I hear brothers and sisters saying things. I'm like, "Oh, I know where you got that." That's a Carson quote. That's a Keller quote. That's a Piper quote. And the question is, does that align itself with the Word of God? Are we hearing God speak to us? or Are we hearing a more prominent Christian figure? What are we Christians to do with the Whitney Houstons and the Barack Obamas and the D.A. Carsons and the Tim Kellers and the John Pipers? What are we supposed to do? Go back to verse 1 again. Go back to it because it's good. It says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Test them. And I would argue the more prominent someone becomes within Christianity, the more you ought to test them. Because the more apt you are to believe what they say because they have a name behind them. Test what you hear. Examine for yourselves whether or not their influence and their teaching is from the Spirit of God or the Spirit of air. Because we hear these things often from various places and conscious of it or not, they make their way in. Paul said to the believers in Thessalonian, Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, so succinct but so good, he says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't be hypercritical. Do not treat prophecy with contempt. Don't just discount what people are saying. And he says in verse 21, test everything. Hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil. Test everything. Hold on to what's good and get rid of the evil. And that's glorious. Because that means that you in the power of Christ are free to hear what people have to say and then take what's right and discard what's not. I don't think I've ever read a single book by a single Christian author. Where I haven't struggled with certain pieces of it, some places I love, I'm like that. Oh, that's that. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It doesn't mean that I'm right, but we shouldn't just read a book and say, well, it's from so and so, therefore the whole thing must be true. It's not the Word of God. There's one Word of God. This is what we hold to. So John starts off and he says, "Believers, I love you. Little children, I love you. Beloved, don't believe everything you hear." Test the spirits. Test them. You say, all right, I got point number one. I'm supposed to give an exam. I've moved out of the the seat of taking the test, and now I'm moving in the seat of proctoring the exam. But how do I do it? I mean, what is the standard? What do I measure? You keep talking about the Word of God and submitting to the Word of God and using the Word of God. How do I do this? I don't even know what it looks like. There are many other people who argue that I shouldn't be using the Word of God. Some say I should be using another religious book like the Quran or the Buddhist scriptures or the Bhagavad Gita or the Pearl of Great Price or the Book of Mormon. Some people say I should use all those and the Bible. Some people say I should just use my reasoning skills, that I should go to philosophy or that I should rely upon science. We're believers, so we say, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about giving this test? Point number two, got to use the right answer key. One time in my giving exams to students, I used to give multiple types of exams. There was objective, short answer, fill in, essay. And I used to give various types of the same exam, a form A, a form B. I was trying to help them not cheat. I was helping them not cheat because that was their inclination. And one time I took the answer key for exam A and I fed it into the computer for exam B. And I ran the whole thing, and I thought, oh, man, they didn't study at all. They did horribly on this. And then I went back, and I realized I used the wrong answer key. When we give this exam, when we test the spirits, those who are teaching these things, we must use the right answer key, or we, too, will come up with the wrong conclusion as to truth or to error. So how are we to discern correctly doctrinal teachings and those who are teaching them? Look at verses 2 and 3, please. 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. John writes, he gives us the answer key. By this you know the Spirit of God. Here's the answer key, ready? And there's only one form. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. And so he comes along and he says, I'm going to establish a foundation upon which all truth must come. And he said, that is the incarnate Jesus Christ. He said, anybody who's professing any eternal truth of any kind as a Christian must first and foremost hold wholeheartedly to this axiom, this truth, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh. I love that. It's so, it's so beautifully simple. He says, listen, if they don't believe that, then whatever they're saying is, 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 is prone to heresy. And if what they're saying is that Christ came in the flesh, then you have a foundation upon which to listen. It doesn't mean that what they're saying is true. You still must test it. But at least you have a foundation upon which to operate. They believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and became a man. It is the crucial matter for the testing of the spirits to determine not only the attitude of those teaching, but what it is they are actually saying. John Calvin wrote this He said, As Christ is the object at which faith aims, so he, Jesus, is the stone at which all heretics stumble. If Christ is the object to which we aim, then he will be the stumbling block, the stone of offense, upon which every single heretic will stumble. Unlike Serentius, John's contemporary, who thought that Jesus, that the Spirit of Christ, only came and temporarily resided upon Jesus, the Spirit of God and anybody who professes truth believes fundamentally that the Christ was incarnate in Jesus at conception and continues in bodily form to this very hour. We believe that Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy second person of the holy triune God came and he entered Mary's womb by immaculate conception, that he was born, that he lived as a man, that he died as a man, that he rose from the dead as a man, and yes, in miraculous form, in bodily form, he ascended as a man. What a sight. What a sight. They're all standing there, and and there goes Jesus in the body. Away he goes. I've seen horrible reenactments of this. They've tried. It just doesn't work. I mean, maybe better today. They're older, you know, just... "Mm," There he goes. Bodily form. And we believe he's going to come back in bodily form and that he's going to reign forever in bodily form. In other words, you cannot deny the incarnation the God-man and simultaneously profess the word of God in truth. Can't deny it. The incarnation of God, Jesus Christ becoming a man, is essential to all just views of atonement and every blessing that we claim both now and for eternity. Why? If the Son of God was not truly of man. If Jesus Christ did not, as the God-man, climb upon that cross and die for our sins, then the entire Bible, the entire system of redemption, of God redeeming mankind, falls apart. The whole thing. And all we can say is that it's an illusion. It's a sleight of hand. There's no hope. Verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh is not from God. When we confess that, when we say with our mouth and believe in our heart that God came as a man and lived as a man and died as a man and rose, when we say that, we are agreeing with God the Father. We're confessing. We're saying with God the Father what we know to be true and that is Christ came in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. We believe Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man simultaneously and now on forever. That's a hard one. The church for the first couple centuries struggled with it. It's similar to the Trinity. There's great mystery in it but we believe it to be true. Fully God, fully man. The man who confesses truth, the man who speaks from the spirit of truth, from the spirit of God, believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They believe that he is man, was man, not that the Christ spirit came upon him and dwelt for a while, as the Gnostics said, not that he was born of Joseph and Mary, but by the spirit of the living God. The man who confesses this eternal truth believes that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh, is our anointed prophet, priest, and king. That he came as a prophet proclaiming the gospel of grace. That he came as our high priest ascending the cross and satisfying the righteous requirements of the law. That he came as our king. And that means when we say that Christ came in the flesh as our priest, as our prophet, as our king, that means we say and we believe that everything that he taught, every word that he uttered, every doctrinal teaching is what our king is saying. And therefore it's absolute. And John says, whoever owns and declares this system of truth, that Christ came in the flesh, that he is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king, anyone who claims this system of truth is from God and anyone who does not claim it is not. For those of you who recall how we started off this letter several weeks ago, the Apostle John establishes every teaching in this letter upon the incarnate Jesus Christ. Do you remember how we started? If not, I will read to you verses 1, 2, and 3 of 1 John 1. Listen closely. we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, everything we've been talking about for the past several weeks is founded upon and contingent upon this eternal truth that God came in the flesh as a man. John starts off the entire letter, verses 1 through 3 saying, everything I'm going to talk about is based upon this. If this isn't true, then everything I'm saying is bogus. What have we heard thus far? What have we heard in these last three chapters? What hope have we gleaned? Can I just go over a few with you? Every single one contingent upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We cannot have fellowship with God and with one another, having the blood of Jesus cleanse us from all sin if he never came in the flesh. Chapter 1, verse 7. We cannot enjoy the blessings of having Jesus as our advocate before the Father, the propitiation for our sins if he never died on the cross in the flesh. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We cannot keep his commands, abide in him, or walk as Jesus walked if Jesus did not first perfectly keep God's commands, abide in God, and walk as God desired him to walk. Chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. We cannot say that our sins are forgiven or that we know Him who is from the beginning or that we have overcome the evil one if Jesus who is from the beginning had not died for our sins and overcome the power of the evil one. Chapter 2, verses 12, 13, 14. We cannot enjoy the anointing of the Holy Spirit if the Son had not first risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit on His behalf. Chapter 2, verse 20. We cannot confess the Son... And have the Father as well if the Son never came for us to confess. Chapter 2, verse 23. We cannot have and enjoy the promise of eternal life if Jesus, the Son of God, did not die in the flesh to destroy the power of eternal death. Chapter 2, verse 25. We, cannot have, we can have no confidence at his second coming and we will most certainly shrink away. In shame, if the righteous one did not come first in the flesh and impart to us his righteousness freely through grace. My beloved, we cannot see what kind of love the Father has given to us, making us children of God. Chapter 3, verse 1 If the Son of God did not come in the flesh and complete the work of salvation on the cross necessary to save sinners like you and me, he appeared in the flesh to take away sins. He appeared in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. He appeared in the flesh to overcome our sins and make us practitioners of righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 10. He appeared in the flesh to love us in such a radical way that he would equip us to love our brothers and sisters in like manner. Chapter 3, verse 11. He appeared in the flesh so that when he appears again in all the glory of the Father, when we see him, we will be like him. Chapter 2, 3, verse 2. We'll be like him, pure. Pure holy, without sin, able to love, worship, and glorify the Father forever and ever as you were originally created. The entire letter thus far is founded upon and contingent upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's why John can say, if you believe that, then you speak truth. If you do not, then you cannot. Simply put, If Jesus Christ, as described in the Bible, did not come in the flesh and do what the Bible declares that he did, then we are, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, to be pitied more than all other men. We are to most be pitied because we believed a lie. We profess a lie. We sing a lie. If Christ did not come in the flesh and did not do what the Bible declares that he did, then we of all people are most to be pitied. But if he did, if Christ came in the flesh and lived the life that we were supposed to live and die the death that we were supposed to die, if he did rise and he did ascend into heaven and he did send his Holy Spirit and if he saves sinners, those who recognize the holiness of God, those who come before God pleading for mercy and grace, if that's true, then you of all men, of all women, not most to be pitied, but most to be followed, most to be emulated. What great joy we have with this eternal truth being real. His coming in the flesh means everything. And his not coming changes everything. Many make it their business today to act as guides of the world. Speaking and publishing volumes on the direction to go, what is true and what is false. And yet the biblical fact remains. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, period. We start there, we end there. So, John says, give a test all the time. Two, use the right answer key, what is it? It is the incarnate Christ and everything that entails. You say, well, <clears throat> what if I'm not confident in grading this exam? What if I get all these essays in, and here I have the answer key, and here I have the essays, and, I, and I'm not confident in actually grading them? I mean, the grading is one of the hardest parts. Right? Writing a test is hard. Proctoring, not so much. Grading, difficult. Very difficult. How do we grade the exam? Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. John tells us, he says, Little children, again, bringing confidence and affirmation. He says, Little children, you're children of God. You are from God and you've overcome them. Overcome whom? You've overcome the Antichrist. You've overcome their teachings. You've overcome their lies. He says, You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, John is saying. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John is, is, is declaring his apostolic authority to hear and write eternal truths. And he says, we, we, myself, and all the other apostles, we're from God. And he says, if you're from God, you're going to listen to what we have to say. Because it aligns itself with the gospel testimony and the entire Old Testament. And he said, if you don't agree with us, then you don't agree with God because we're from God. And you say, well, that's an arrogant thing. You can't say that. I can't say that. The Apostle John could. He stood in the apostolic office. And what he's saying here is that you can... And you must give the exam, proctor the exam, and grade the exam. You must. If you declare Christ, if you desire truth, if you want to pursue righteousness, you can and you must regularly give and grade these exams. Why? Because God is in you. If you know God the Father, you know God the Son. Jesus said, if you know me, you know the Father. And so you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And that's why he says, ultimately, you cannot be misled. You may be for a time being. We all are. But you ultimately cannot be. Ultimately, God says, because of the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you, you will discern right from wrong. The power within you enables you to examine, evaluate, and then live in accordance with truth, not err. You are a son or daughter of the Father of truth. That is his character, and by his adopting grace, that becomes your character as well. You're not a slave to error. You're not a slave to the Antichrist. any longer. You've been set free from that in Christ. How glorious. You don't have to be fearful of being swept away. If you know Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and you have a Bible in your hand. If you don't, ask me. I'll get you one today. Then you have what is necessary to discern right from wrong, truth from falsehood the Spirit of God and the Spirit of air. You are kept today, this very hour, by the power of God unto salvation. You have been enlightened by the Spirit of God dwelling within you. As a believer, you have all that you need for life and godliness. That means, saints... If if you struggle with this area in your life, if you struggle taking truth and falsehood, hearing this teaching, you struggle with it, it's not a power issue. It's not an ability issue. It may be a faith issue. It may be a desire issue. But it's not an issue of God empowering you to do this. God never calls us to that which we are unable to do, He calls us to it and then He equips us to do it. And so He says, Here's my word. Here are brothers and sisters to come alongside you. See, we don't do this alone. We're not called to do this alone. We're called to gather collectively and do this together. You're called to hear what I say and preach to you. (laughs) By God's grace, you go home and you open your Bible and you say, I hope the pastor was right. You're going to, right? The word denotes an expectation of approval. I hope he was right. I want him to be right. I'm going to examine what he said. By all means, do that. You ought not trust me. I don't trust me. Do you do that, saints? Don't answer. Don't raise your hand. But do you do that? Rhetorical question. Do you take what is preached? Do you take what is taught and submit it to the word of God? Listen, if it's wrong, then out of your love for me, you've got to come and talk to me in love and gentleness and humility. Right? But you should bring the word of God and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with what you said. I can tell you there'll be much fear and trembling in my hearing it because there are many Warnings in scripture about those who teach the word of God. So if if you hear something that is not right, you come and you talk to me or you talk to one of the elders and we work this thing out because if I'm wrong out of your love for me, you'll correct me. And if you're wrong out of my love for you, I'll correct you. Why? Because we want to live by the truth. We want to be people of the truth. We want to glorify God in truth. What you cannot say is that you can't. If you cannot discern right from wrong in any capacity, then we must say you do not know God. But if you know Christ, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you have the means to do this. Too much dummying down in the church. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not my story. It's a better story. 1 Samuel 17, we're told that the Philistines gathered their forces for war against the Israelites in Judah. Most of you know this, but it's such a great story. I could read this thing a hundred times and I don't think you would ever get tired of it. A champion named Goliath came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze. Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? He said, Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Goliath was the spokesperson of the world. He was in that moment the chief antichrist, defying God's people, defying God's king, King Saul, defying God's power to overcome him. In 1 John 4, 5, he was from the world, he spoke from the world, and the world listened to him. I can go so far as to say God's people listened to him. Forty days, Goliath the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand against God's people. Forty days and forty nights, this man defiled God's name. Now, during this exact same time, Jesse sent his son, David, who was a shepherd, he sent him to the front lines. And he sent him, he sent him with roasted grain and bread to go to his brothers and some of those around his brothers. And he wanted, Jesse wanted an update on how the battle was going. So David arrives on scene. This is what we're told. David reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. David asked the men standing near, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? King Saul heard about this and he sent for David. David said to the king, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant. David will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy and he has been a fighting man from his youth. Listen to David's response. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and I killed it. A lion and a bear. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Listen to this. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said, go, David, and may the Lord be with you. Was he just being arrogant? Or did David know something that we do not know? David took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Goliath looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, Goliath said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, David said and i will strike you down and cut off your head today i will give the carcasses of the philistine armies to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a god in israel all those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the lord saves for the battle is the lord's and he will give all of you he and he will give all of you into our hands David understood centuries earlier what the Apostle John was saying here when he said, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. David knew this. David's battle against Goliath was won before it was ever fought. David understood, and that's why he said in verse 46, This day the Lord will hand you, Goliath, over to me, for the battle is of the Lord's. David put all of his trust and all his hope, not in his ability, not in his sling, not in those five magical smooth stones, but in God doing a great work through him. He knew that God would do to Goliath just as he had done to the lions and bears that had attacked the sheep of Jesse's fold. As the Philistine moved closer to attack David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and he drew it from the the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Like Goliath, the world comes to us, the media, the false prophets, the false teachers, constantly shouting in defiance against God, in defiance against Christ, in defiance against the church and against the gospel. This constant barrage against the word of God. And we as God's people, just like David, have the exact same power through faith to test what they say, to examine it, and to grade it rightly. Regardless of how well-crafted, how persuasive, or how sweet-sounding their arguments may be, regardless of how intimidating they may be, regardless of the fear they cast out like Goliath, you have been equipped by the Holy Spirit to engage in this battle. And it is a battle. It may not be physical like David and Goliath, but it is a battle for your heart and mind. And it's a battle that rages every single day. Centuries later, the son of David, the greater David, would have to fight as well. He would come against the powers of Satan, sin, and death. He was brought throughout his life into direct conflict with the ways and the wisdom of the world. Every attempt was made to get him off course to get Jesus to, to not engage in the work of the gospel, to not go to the cross, to not do his father's will. But like David, Jesus put his faith in the power of God to save him from the depths of the grave and in so doing overcame the powers of the prince of this world. In John chapter 12, so assured of this, Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus knew this by faith. A few chapters later in John 16, he said to his disciples, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Jesus said, what? I have overcome the world. The world. The one who came from heaven to earth in the flesh has overcome the world. And by the Holy Spirit that he has empowered you with, we too can discriminate rightly and overcome the world as well. To discern rightly between the spirit of God and the spirit of error, between the spirit of truth and the spirit of the antichrist. And saints, the victory lies in the grating. David was not successful until he took out his sling and then cut off Goliath's head. We must rightly grade. We must engage. We must give the test. We must proctor the test. And we must grade the test. Unveiling all the designs to to thwart the work of the church. We must uncover all the lies that we hear to get you or me or our brothers and sisters off track. Exposing all the fallacies set up against the work of Christ and the cross. And disclosing all the beauties. The miraculous beauties and gems of the word of God. Like Goliath, he that is in this world has a great power of delusion. And like Goliath, can cast much fear out. But because of the work of Christ, like like David, we can approach everything that we hear, everything that we read, everything that we see, we can approach it, not in fear, but in great confidence, knowing this, that if it is a lie, it is already defeated. If it is a lie, it is already defeated. And if it is true, we want to hear it. We want to know it. We want to to affirm our faith as well. Because there's already victory in Christ. And so Jesus says, be of good cheer. Because you too, in me, have already overcome the world. You too, in me, have already overcome the world. Look at verse 6 again. He says, we, John says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, he said, there's a language to this. The Antichrist speak the language of the world, and the world listens to them. John says, we're speaking the language of God, and those who belong to God listen to us. God's word, his holy word, elicits a right response from God's people because there's, a, there's an affinity between the two. There's an intimacy between you and the word of God if you know God. Jesus alludes to this several times in the gospel of John. In John 8, 47, he said, Jesus said, he who belongs to God hears what God says. The Bible. Again, in John 10, 27, he said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them And they follow me. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By what? By knowing God. By knowing God. You know, over the years, um, I've done premarital counseling. Before a young man and a young woman get married, they are required to spend six or seven painful sessions with me going through scripture to discern whether or not they have a right understanding of the word of God and what a covenant marriage is. It's usually not all that painful, right? Sometimes. Uh, With one couple, when going over the biblical roles of husbands and wives in a covenant marriage, the issue of submission became a particular sticking point, not surprising in light of our culture. This one young lady had been taught by the culture her entire life that there was no such thing as gender distinction of any kind and anytime that gender distinction was used it was wrong because it was a power play on one or the other she thought that a healthy marriage was comprised of two people who had equal say at all times in all matters in other words she rejected the idea of a head of house which is what the bible teaches in reality she had been taught and believed in part that women were superior to men and that women should be head of house, although she would never have said this because she was raised in a Christian home. But that's what came out in the dialogue. Fascinating dialogue. So when we went over Colossians 3.18 and more pointedly Ephesians 5, passages that dealt with the biblical roles in marriage, there was a part she loved. When I read to her the role of the man from Ephesians 5, verses 25-27, listen... Paul said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her from the washing with water through the word and to present her to, present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. She loved that. She said, that's, that's fantastic as a role of a husband, to love me in that manner and care for me in that manner. Not so fond of the preceding passage in Ephesians 5, through 24 that said, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his holy body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. She agreed with the biblical role of the husband, but she disagreed with the biblical role of the wife. Now that's problematic, because otherwise we have an error in Scripture, or there was an error in her thinking. So what did she do? Such a miraculous movement in this young lady's life. She went home and she opened her Bible and she studied Colossians and she studied Ephesians and she studied the gospel and she said she looked at it and then she had her fiancé, her future husband come and teach her because that was going to be his role. And so he came in and then she gathered women in the church and they opened their Bibles and they studied that. Two, three weeks later, we were meeting again in the office doing some more premarital counseling before the wedding date. And she had changed her mind. She had changed her mind that for 22, 23 years had been filled with a lie. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, we know the Spirit of God dwells in her if she knows Christ and she has the Word of God. And therefore, when the Holy Spirit of God reveals this truth, we have one of two choices. We either reject truth or we submit to it. And by God's grace, she submitted to it. And she came back, and the dialogue was very different. It was extraordinary. And I realized I was witnessing a miracle. I was witnessing the transformation of heart and mind in the life of someone saved by grace. And it was God's grace who was changing her. Now, I could not stand here and tell you that she doesn't still struggle with it in daily application and in her marriage. But she knows what's true And so when those lies rear their head in her life, she can go back to Colossians, she can go back to Ephesians, and she can go back to the truth and say, wait a minute, I know what's true. I can submit to it in Christ and live in accordance with it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it's supposed to work. We're supposed to test everything. We're supposed to test it in light of Scripture and bring it into the context of the body. And then we're supposed to grade it. And if it's true, we submit to it. If it's a lie, we get rid of it and this we must do for how long? For the rest of our lives. This you must do every day. Every day. Because every day, you're being bombarded with truths and lies. Every day, you are called to examine what you hear and what you see and what you read. Every day. And if you do, if we do this individually, and we do this in our families, and we do this as a church, every day, That means every day we will be aligning ourselves more and more and more with the Word of God. And you know what happens then? Transformation. Radical transformation of people, characters, communities. We can say cities and states and nations in the world. When every day we say, I want to be reformed, I want the lies to be cast out, and I want the truth to become more prominent and more real in my life, you'll change. You'll change. Let me end with this. That we pray for one another to this end. That we become test givers. That we become people who use the answer key of Christ. That we become people who grade rightly the test that we give. And we then will pray along with the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this and I'll close. Paul says, For this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This we must pray for one another. He continues in verse 10 of Colossians 1. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Why? So that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Let us pray for one another. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. Pray for one another to this end. That we become people as a people who test rightly. Who grade rightly according to the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this teaching. Where you call us out of the role of test taker. And into the role of examiner. To test everything. In light of your holy word, according to the incarnate Christ, I praise you, Father, for the ability we have to do this in the Holy Spirit. I praise you for your word, for the standard, the canon that you've given us and preserved throughout all the centuries. I praise you for this local body of believers brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can come together with and open up our Bibles, like the Bereans, like the Ephesians, and study these things. I praise you, Lord, that we're not subject to the whims and the teachings of the Antichrist, that we can hear what they say, that we can bring it in and evaluate it, that we can know truth and live by it. Father, I ask for your grace to be poured out on us as a people. I ask for that same grace to be poured out on every church gathering this day throughout the world. That we would be a people that desire to know truth and live in accordance with it. That we would realize, even at this very hour, so many that we still have so many lies that convolute our thinking. God, give us the desire and the faith to engage in this mighty battle. And it is a battle. Give us the wisdom to come alongside our brothers and sisters that we might love one another to this end, opening up our Bibles and sharing truth on a daily basis that our hearts might not be hardened by sin or grow cold. We know that you must do this work, and so we ask that you would be gracious to this end. In Christ's holy name, amen.